Welcome to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com where we answer the questions you ask about Metro Phoenix. I'm your host, Kayla White. Today, we have a host of questions about the light rail. The light rail debuted in 2008 as a new public transit option that proponents hoped would propel Phoenix into the big leagues of cities. It started at 20 miles long, jumped to 26, and now it's 28. It extends from 19th and Dunlap Avenues on the northwest end to downtown Mesa on the southeast. But since its opening a little over a decade ago, people have asked a lot of questions about it. To start, why did we even build a light rail? Or... My question is about the design of the light rail trains. I was just curious about who designed them and why they look the way they do. Yeah, I wanted to know if the light rail system has been successful since it was implemented. I just wanted to know um, why Phoenix chose like a light rail over a monorail. Um, my question is, is there more crime along the light rail? We also received questions about whether it hurts nearby businesses and whether it costs more than a bus or a car. Lucky for you guys, we have a resident expert on the light rail. She's a reporter in our newsroom and my friend, Jessica Bame. She and producer Taylor Seeley will answer your questions. My name is Jessica Bame, and I am an Arizona native, and I have been a reporter at the Arizona Republic since 2015, and I currently cover the city of Phoenix. Which, of course, includes the light rail. Absolutely, yeah. Light rail is one of the things we cover the most in the city of Phoenix, and personally, transportation is one of my favorite passion topics to cover, so I'm pretty excited to be here doing this today. And that's not nerdy in the slightest. Definitely not. I am super cool. All right. Well, let's get into our first question. Jessica, why did the light rail come to Phoenix? Well, to answer that question, we spoke to... Scott Smith, Valley Metro CEO. Valley Metro is the regional public transit agency that offers people rides. It operates the light rail, the buses, dial-a-rides, all those taxpayer-funded transit amenities. I asked Scott about when people first started talking about the light rail in Phoenix and how that conversation progressed. Well, the interesting thing is we have a history of rail. Uh, back in the, uh, before 1950, the early 50s, there was a streetcar system. You heard that right. From 1887 to 1948, Phoenix had a streetcar system. The first cars were pulled by mules east and west along Washington Street. But the streetcars really took off in the 20s. They were electric by that point and traveled at a whopping 15 miles per hour. But when the depression hit, maintenance took a turn for the worst. Plus, automobiles were growing more and more popular by then. The final nail in the coffin was a fire that destroyed all but six of Phoenix's streetcars in 1947. And in 1948, the streetcars ended. But Scott said the streetcars never really faded out of public memory, though. Uh, but that, that was always lingering in the back of people's minds as to why can't we have that kind of a system? In the 1980s, Phoenicians took notice of the first light rail in San Diego. 
that prompted conversations here in the Valley. And also the notion that rail could succeed in a Western car-centric city uh, started to come alive in the early to mid-80s. And people in Phoenix start talking about it. In 1989, regional leaders asked Maricopa County voters to approve a plan called Valtrans, which would have brought 100 miles of elevated tracks to the valley. The voters gave it a big, whopping no way. But transit fans, they kept trying. In Phoenix, voters turned the rail system down another two times in the 90s. And then finally in 2000, they said yes. And a few years later, the rest of the valley said yes, too. But it passed overwhelmingly, region-wide. And uh, the system began construction in, in 2005 and opened in 2008 as a 20-mile system. By the way, the largest single-day opening of a rail system in U.S. history, 20 miles. That was a, a monumental accomplishment. But it was a dream that really was 25, almost 30 years in the making. So there you have it. Why'd the light rail come to Phoenix? We thought it would help with growth, bring development, and fill the void left by our defunct streetcar system. But if you ask me, I'm pretty sure the main motivation was this. We wanted to put Phoenix on the map as a cool, big city. And think about it. What do all cool, big cities have? You guessed it, a rail system. I mean, to be clear, I think we're cool regardless of our transit options, just saying. I mean, obviously. So, on to our next question. Uh, my name is Brent Carroll. I live in downtown Phoenix, and I'm curious, as I've seen ridership pick up and a lot more activity along the light rail, but I wanted to see if it's been successful enough to where we will see further expansion. To give you a qualitative answer, we talked to the people who know it best, the riders. You know, power to the people. I met up with Jessica at the Rural and University Light Rail Stop. Hi. Hi. <laughs> that morning, and then again that afternoon, we set out to interview riders. We wanted to know, what was their take on light rail? So for you, do you think that light rail is successful? I think so, since it's been here. I mean, I've lived in Arizona my whole life, and I've used it since it came out, so. We also asked about safety. You know, some people worry about safety. Do you feel like it's unsafe to be on here? Sometimes, yes. I mean, just because I know some neighborhoods are bad, you know, but, like, I don't usually feel threatened, you know. I think it's only happened like one time with a really like intoxicated passenger, but other than that, that was like years ago and I haven't really experienced anything like it before or again, so. There was one gentleman we spoke to though who said he always felt like he had to be on guard when he was on the light rail. Just having be aware, you know, you can tell if something's not safe or not. I've seen people on drugs on the light rail, so it's just it's being aware, being safe. And he wasn't the only writer who mentioned drugs. Take Vinny, for example. He's a student at Arizona State University. I've passed it before. I've seen people doing heroin in the, on the train stops, or the, the stops, yeah. That's not great. Not a good experience, no. But not every uncomfortable experience was necessarily bad. Some of them were, dare I say it, funny? 
Take this for example, a man who said he saw a pig on the train once. Um, I saw a couple bring a pig on, on the light rail a couple days ago actually, so. Oh my gosh, why were they, why did they have a pig? I don't know, I didn't ask him. <laughs> Never a dull moment. No. There was another ASU student named Leandra Matthews who shared this story. I don't know. Um, I think last semester, uh, I was having a really bad day. And then like some lady with some kind of intuition, she was just like, she was like one of those old fashioned ladies. She was like, it's okay, baby. Like, it's okay. <laughs> and for some reason, I felt like, she right. It's gonna be okay. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> To answer this a little more quantitatively, though, yes, you will see expansion in the future. The current plans are for the light rail to increase from 28 miles, the length of it today, to about 50 miles by the year 2030. And if you were to measure success by the ridership, that has certainly surpassed expectations. In 2018, the light rail transported 50,000 riders a day. Valley Metro didn't expect to reach that number until 2020. Though it is worth noting, in the last year, light rail ridership slipped by about 725,000 riders. Most people chalk that up to lowering gas prices nationwide, though. In terms of investment, Valley Metro estimates $11 billion in private and public investment has sprouted within a half mile of the light rail line since 2008. That's when the light rail opened. So is the light rail successful? The truth is, that answer varies person to person, because it depends on how you measure success. Jessica, what's the next question? This one came from someone inside our newsroom, actually. I am Lauren, and I live in Phoenix. My question is about the design of the light rail trains. I was just curious about who designed them and why they look the way they do. There's room to have different seats I've ridden other public transit systems and they seem to use their space a lot better. Lauren's a web producer who only sits about 100 feet away from me, by the way. Hi, Lauren. So I did some research on this question and found some pretty interesting information. In 2008, when the light rail debuted, the Arizona Republic printed an article with the title, Light Rail Provided Unique Challenges for Lead Designer. The lead designer was a man named John Swanson, and he had designed light rail vehicles in France, Germany, and the United Kingdom. One of the obstacles he had to overcome in designing a light rail for Phoenix was managing the heat. That's because some of the electrical components in the rail don't do well in climates like Arizona. Also, I think it goes without saying, but people don't do well in high heat situations either. So to confront that challenge, First, he made the paint on the light rail's exterior reflective to keep heat out. Second, the vehicles are insulated. And third, he doubled the number of air conditioning units. Well, that would explain why the AC is so loud in there. Yes, <laughs> exactly. What about the question of seating? Did you find out whether or not Valley Metro put effort into maximizing the amount of seating? Yeah, I spoke to Susan Tierney with Valley Metro about that. Here's what she said. Uh, we really look to maximize the space inside of each light rail vehicle. And our light rail, uh, we, they do operate bi-directional. So they are either going east and west or north and south. So you will always have some forward 
facing seats. Uh, we also want to maximize the comfort and safety. We provide ADA seating. We have level boarding. So what happens if you are in a wheelchair or a um, mobile mobility device, you'll be able to just roll onto the fleet and then sit into a, um, a spot that has been reserved for ADA for people that use devices to help them you know, board the, the train. Uh, we have 66 seats in each light rail vehicle. Uh, we have a comfort capacity of 175 passengers. We also have four wheelchair positions and four bike racks. All right. Well, we got one more question about the design of the light rail. And that one came from... Hi, I'm Tyler Gordon. I just wanted to know um, why Phoenix chose like a light rail over a monorail. So I'll be transparent and admit I did not know what the difference was between a light rail and monorail when we got this. Yeah, me either. Uh, the only thing I think of when I hear the word monorail is Disneyland. But it turns out whenever cities debate rail options, apparently monorail always comes up. It's such a cliche that The Simpsons spoofed it once. I give you the Springfield Monorail. <gasps> I've sold monorails to Brockway, Ogdenville, and North Haverbrook. And by gum, it put them on the map. Well, sir, there's nothing on earth like a genuine, bona fide, electrified six-car monorail. What'd I say? Monorail. What's it called? Monorail. That's right, monorail. Anyway, I called David King, a professor at Arizona State University who studies public transit, to figure out the difference between a light rail and a monorail. So a monorail is uh, a train that operates on a single track rather than a light rail, which operates on a dual track, like a, like a conventional train. And a monorail can either hang on an elevated track or it can sit on top of a raised individual rail uh, that would sit in the uh, in the middle of the floor of the of the train. Okay, so why does it seem that people typically choose for the light rail route recently? Well, the light a light rail is far more compatible with city living. You know, we think of monorails as the future, and they have always been thought that way. And Disneyland has their monorail, which is what most people think of when they think of the monorail. But monorails come with far more infrastructure that doesn't work with walkable communities and and what we want. Like I said, you either have to have elevated um, infrastructure where the monorail would hang, and that creates visual blight that a lot of people don't like because it's a fairly large set of infrastructure. Otherwise, you have a fairly substantial single rail that pokes up from the ground, um, which would you know be a curb that sits up you know one or two or three feet uh, that uh, that the train would sit on, and so that curb would have to exist, and that would obviously be very difficult for an intersection, for instance, because you wouldn't be able to have cars crossing over this you know this monorail track. Uh, so it's not really all that compatible with um, you know, with, with with having a pedestrian environment or even interacting with cars. So I guess there we have it. All right, on to the next question. My name is Priscilla Dityapring Prasert, and I use the light rail, but I've heard a lot of people say that they're against light rail expansion because they think it brings crime to their neighborhoods. 
but I haven't seen any sources or stats to back this up. Jessica, Priscilla was also curious if this hurts nearby businesses. So both of those questions come up a lot. And I'm going to warn you in advance that it's very hard to give a definitive answer on either of these. So I warned you. So let's start with crime. I hear from the neighbors who live near the 19th Avenue light rail stations a lot, and they wholeheartedly believe that light rail has brought more crime and homelessness to their area. And in 2016, when that light rail extension opened, police calls near the platforms increased by 37%. Now, one could say that that's proof that, yes, indeed, crime rose. But police calls don't necessarily mean crime actually rose. There needs to be a lot more research done before we could say anything for certain. City Lab, a niche news site that focuses on urbanization, looked at transit's relationship with crime nationally a few years ago. The site found that often there's more of a perception of heightened crime than there is actual crime. Yeah, I remember you also asked Scott Smith, the CEO of Valley Metro, about crime too. Yeah, and here's what he said. Our incidents of of crime and other things are very, very rare. They happen because you're putting people together, but they're very rare. And and I I do think that in the past there were behaviors on our light rail that while they didn't rise to the level of criminal behavior, uh, we didn't do as good a job. Uh, We didn't have the tools really to enforce it. So we do have a perception issue. Today, Valley Metro offers riders a free app they can download on their smartphones to discreetly alert officials to questionable behavior. That app is called Alert Valley Metro. There are also phone numbers inside the light rail cars that riders can call. So how about the impact on business? As far as light rail's impact on businesses, I talked to Julian Nabosny, who owned a McDonald's at 24th and Washington Streets for years. When light rail came in front of his shop, well, I'll let him tell you about it. When construction actually started, we saw a substantial decrease in sales. Many of our customers chose different locations to go and and buy their food. Uh, Many changed their travel plans to avoid going through the construction. We had to lay off some, not lay off, but not hire as many people as we had projected. And when construction was over and the train started rolling. Actually, we did not recover because people develop different habits, especially driving habits. And they uh, learn to avoid that area and uh, we did not actually recover our uh, loss of sales, loss of customers. When we talked to Scott Smith, we asked him about this, and he admitted that, yeah, construction is really difficult on businesses. Uh, We know the challenges that businesses um, face when uh, we're building because we've lived through that with the businesses. Scott said Valley Metro is trying to improve its business outreach program with each new light rail project. They offer business assistance classes, marketing tools, and they're starting to look at some financial support. He also said that not all businesses are impacted equally, and, well, some aren't impacted at all. Believe it or not, some businesses actually see an increase in sales during light rail construction. We experienced that both in Mesa and on 19 North. 
other businesses a, a, a huge decrease. There's also great concern about gentrification. Recently in Phoenix, there was an election to end any future light rail expansions. It failed, so the rail will expand. But the people who didn't want the expansion feared light rail would drive up rents and force out family businesses. Okay, so the sixth and final question. It's about the affordability of light rail versus other transportation options. I spoke to Deborah Salen, an assistant professor at ASU who studies transportation planning in cities about this. The light rail is more expensive, period. It's really a lot more expensive. You have to put light, you know, rail infrastructure in the road, whereas for a bus, you don't need to do that. But a light rail is a lot more permanent just for that reason. Scott Smith also mentioned the high startup costs, but he said he encourages people to think about the long life cycle of the light rail. Uh, it is a high upfront cost, just like your house is a high upfront cost. But you expect to live in your house for not five months, but five years, 10 years, 20 years, and so you're willing to spend that. That's really how you have to look at uh, infrastructure projects like light rail. This has a 50 to 80 year life cycle. On top of the life cycle, Deborah from ASU said the permanence of light rail can spur development and boost an area's economy. So when you put a permanent piece of infrastructure in to be part of the, of the landscape of a city, then it actually changes the city in important ways, right? It focuses development around that new piece of infrastructure in a way that a bus line doesn't. Because when you put a bus line, you say, okay, I'm going to put a bus down this street. No developer is going to make long-term decisions based on that bus being there because the city might you know, tomorrow decide to move the bus route in a different place. So that's a big reason why sometimes cities really prefer to put more um, long-lasting, permanent infrastructure in because it has this development kind of, it, it gives development a bump in that area. So if they're looking for, you know, where do we want to channel development? If you put a big piece of infrastructure in, that will do, do help do that for them. Deborah also said light rail can help with things like traffic by reducing the number of cars on the road. It can also help people who don't have access to their own car. When you're talking about transit versus roads, especially that gets into a lot of questions about equity, equity of access. What do we as a society care about? And those are big policy questions, but it's a different kind of question than a bang for, bang for my buck question. It's a societal question. So maybe in addition to asking about the cost of light rail, we also ask ourselves, what's it worth? Hey, it's me, Kayla again. Taylor and Jessica, thank you for answering all of those questions. Jess, I know you have followed the light rail for a really long time. Did you learn anything new about it during this process? I did, actually. I had no idea that our first streetcars were pulled by mules. That just blows my mind. And I also really enjoyed learning more about monorails. I really did not realize their practical use beyond, well, Disneyland. Uh, so that was really fun to learn about. Taylor, what about you? 
I think it was just really interesting to start thinking about the value of public transit to society and how it can change a community. You know, Taylor, I think about that a lot. Not just public transit, but our transportation system in general is really critical to the lives of all Arizonans. It's how we're able to access good jobs. It's how we're able to access affordable housing. And without a reliable transportation system that works for everyone, our economy will truly never be successful. That's a great point. And also listeners, that's exactly what I meant when I said she's very passionate about transportation. Well, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. If you like our show, it's been a while since I asked you to leave us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find the show. And if you want more behind the scenes information or to find out, you know, what each of us is excited about this month, you can subscribe to our newsletter at valley101newsletter.azcentral.com. Submit your questions to us about Metro Phoenix at valley101podcast.azcentral.com. Do you think I have enough URLs for you yet? And you can also follow us on Twitter at valley101pod. We'll tweet a picture of that pig you heard about. All right, that's it for today. See you next week.